Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this podcast is Peter Kaminsky, well-known author um, and food critic. He's written many books about food and cooking, including a book called Pig Perfect, Encounters with Remarkable Swine, another book called Seven Fires that he wrote with Francis Malman, and he's co-authored a number of books with well-known uh, figures in the food area. Uh, he, his outdoors column has appeared in the New York Times for 20 years. He's written the Underground Gourmet for the New York Magazine, and he is, has a book that is forthcoming called Culinary Intelligence. So, Peter, it's a delight to have you here. It's great to be here, Kelly. So let's talk about the Pig Perfect book you wrote, and you went out in search of the world's best ham. What got you interested in this topic in the first place? Kind of a backdoor route. I, uh, when I started to write about the outdoors, uh, I guess in the late 70s, it was after I'd been excused from National Lampoon where I worked for four years, um, I got very interested in fly fishing and fishing and hunting, which is unusual for a New York boy. And uh, it was an opportunity for me to get to know America. I knew Europe better than America, and I traveled a lot in the Midwest and the South. And while in the South, I just became enamored of, uh, of barbecue, which is a great tradition in the South, and country hams. Once I had my first one, which I had in, I believe, in Thomasville, Georgia, uh, maybe in 1978, 79, I said, this is a great food. And uh, once I'd had that first one, whenever I found myself with some time on my hands in one of those states, I'd see if somebody made a good ham. And they usually did. So I became, uh, as my agent said, grown, grown, a hamthropologist. <laughs> That's a great term. So what, what stimulated you then to develop a book idea around it? I had written a book um, about fly fishing uh, and about the, game, the wildlife migration in Montauk every year. And uh, kind of a personal experience book with a lot of science and history in it. And my publishers, my editor, uh, Gretchen Young at Hyperion, wanted a, a food book in the same vein. Uh, I didn't have much an idea. And then uh, I guess it was Virginia Woolf said, you get them in the shower. And I started thinking about all the hams I'd eaten and the crazy people and crazy names. Tarsilla Greasehopper in St. Genevieve, Missouri, and just... Uh, so I wrote them a note with all these characters in it. said, so I'd like to find the best ham in the world. I love ham. Uh, and and uh, they were convinced, I guess, by the tone and the topic. Pork was, was a common thing, uh, and it now has arrived in the food world as a obsession. So that's how I started it. And so where did your travels take you? Because you did some of this in the U.S. and some outside the U.S. Yes, I... Um, well, I traveled down to the Yucatan because I'd spent some time. I spent, a lot, I spent a lot of time in Mexico over the years, and I'd eaten a great, great recipe there called cochinita pibil, buried pig. A, p a pib is a pit in, uh, in Mayan. And uh, so I sampled some of that and learned how to make that. And, uh, you know, in this world, I guess like in every field of endeavor, you rely on your friends and the friends of the friends. And I had a friend named Pascal Vitu who was in charge of the cheese program at Restaurant Danielle, and he had a friend who, who had a friend who made cheeses in Burgundy, and they invited me to their pig killing. And uh, 
I, I am of the opinion that uh, anyone who doesn't take an invitation to Burgundy needs psychiatric help right away. So I went over. That was great. And on that trip, we ate some of uh, pork noir, gas, Gascon. I don't speak French. I speak Spanish. I tend to put that accent on it. And these are the uh, ancient breed of pigs uh, that used to be raised all over Europe before the English started uh, improving, in quotes, breeds at the end of the 18th century. And so I went and tried some pork and pigs. They were raised outside on pasture and uh, on chestnuts. And I had some of that ham. It was fabulous. And I knew, because I'd heard it talked about a lot in the food world, the hams of Spain are made from those pigs. Uh, they're not called black pigs. They're called pata negra, black foot, because of the color of their hoof in Spain. And I'd even tasted some, and I said, i got to see how these guys and gals make this stuff. So I went into the west of Spain, Extremadura, uh, the extremes, which is really the uh, ancient deserted or uh, sparsely populated borderlands between Portugal and uh, and Spain, and it's land that had been reconquered from the Moors in the 12 and 1300s, and it had devolved into large land holdings, which the Spaniards, uh, who've always seen wealth in cattle uh, or in livestock, uh, devoted to pigs, sheep, cows, and goats, and uh, uh, they they love their pig more than anything else. And it really is land that's uh, um, managed to give the pig the very best diet to make the most delicious pork. And uh, there, there is nothing in second place to that Spanish pork. And they make these beautiful hams there. And I spent some time among them uh, cooking, uh, visiting scientists, visiting farmers. And uh, so that I, did, I didn't have to look at much else after that. Um, I've got to tell you the truth. I went to, uh, to uh, Holland to visit with a forester who gave me the sort of uh, big eco the ecological 30,000-foot view of why these pigs were so good in Spain. And I traveled around the south to visit some ham makers and some barbecuers uh, and ended up raising my own pigs, well, with the help of two farmers. Uh, I guess I was the, the, the gentleman writer farmer in this uh, um, endeavor. I'd like to come back and talk about the pigs that you bought, but one thing that when you talk about this and when you write about it in your, your book, Pig Perfect, you bring alive stories of some of the people that are involved in raising these pigs and creating the hams. And one story you told in particular that I found fascinating was uh, a person in Italy where you found a particular good ham. Could you just tell us about him and what you Sure, what he you're found? talking about Massimo Spigaroli, He's in the town of Polesini Parmenzi, uh, which is between Parma and Cremona. And, uh, well, here, here's the deal. One of the nice things about any field of study is just when you think you've put, uh, you know, dotted the I's and T's and you know the last thing on it, which I thought I had done when I'd been to Spain, I find this guy who makes a traditional Italian boneless ham called a culatello, cured and aged, and I just think it's the best ham on earth. Uh, I, I, it just, it's just astonishing. And I've sent some chefs over there. Well, I found them because, uh, well, you know, in food like in fishing and hunting, you sort of like triangulate. You get your, you know, intelligence from a few areas until a story sounds right. Well, Cesare Casella, a great Tuscan chef in New York, and Mario Batali, a great Italian-American chef, 
both pointed me to this guy, Massimo. Uh, Mario's uh, email said, Massimo Spigaroli, he shames all fakers, which is very Mario. So I visited this man. He's a very humble fellow, quiet spoken, from a long line of farmers. And he's a farmer. He raises all heritage breeds of ducks, pigs, uh, cattle, uh, poultry, um, grapes, corn. And um, he only serves local, uh, these locally raised things in his restaurant, Cavallino Bianco, on the banks of the Po River. And the only fish uh, he serves comes out of the Po. It's all freshwater fish. His great-grandfather was the culatello maker for Giuseppe Verdi. So he's got it in his blood. And he raises pigs. uh, He raises the Spanish breed. And by that I mean that's the breed that was all over Europe. It's only found in Spain now. And he feeds them. He lets them free range all summer in the cornfields and they eat grass, which uh, raises the antioxidant level in the meat, which allows it to age and become ham without becoming rancid. And he feeds them every night, right when they're putting on weight for slaughter. He feeds them on a mix of fava, barley, and corn that he grinds up every night. He wants it fresh, and I asked him about this, so that the oils and the fat in these uh, uh, and the plant material doesn't turn rancid. So it's just a delicious meat. Because it's boneless, <clears throat> it doesn't have to be aged very long. I mean, it doesn't have to be salted as heavily as an American ham. And uh, he washes it in this wine from a grape that he raises, a heritage grape, and bathes it in garlic and then salts it. ties it up, puts it in a pig bladder that's perforated, hangs it in this cellar uh, that has served to age culatello and uh, parmesan cheese for 700 years. So it's got some funk. (laughs) Uh, And at at night, he opens the the window so that this fog descends off the po, and he strews the floor with uh, the must from the Fontara grapes, he crushes and there's wine he washes the meat in and that just mixes in the air and infuses uh, the meat and uh, well I, I remember going down going along the uh, his bodega his his aging cellar there and uh, seeing Bocuse and Tuagro and uh, Marchese and all the great Michelin three-star chefs <clears throat> they're on to this ham uh, so uh that's Massimo. It's very really nice crazy. guy. Very well, nice guy. One thing that, that I think you do so beautifully in your writing, and you've done just today, is that f- food becomes very interesting when you know its story, when you know how it's created and who makes it, and there's a personality behind it and a, and a process and a history and culture and tradition and all that sort of thing. It's really, when, when you bring it alive like you do, it, it, the food tastes better just by virtue of the story. But then, of course, the food probably does taste better because it's you know, developed in the ways that you discussed. Do you think more people are getting interested in this, the story of their food? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think uh, restaurateurs and chefs, uh, purveyors are, are discovering this. I mean, you, you've taught about the psychology uh, uh, and biology of food. And human beings love stories. They just are enraptured by stories. 
people who sell us wine have known this for a long time. Uh, sometimes they drill down and tell us too much of the story, but we really like knowing where it came from and what the soil was like and what the history of the, of the winemaker's family is. And I, uh, without question, have found that um, certainly in restaurants where they can tell you the story behind that carrot, which uh, the great uh, American chef Dan Barber will do at his uh, Stone Barns, um, or they can tell you where the tomato came from, or they knew uh, who raised the lamb, it, it just perks your ears up and it makes you more interested. Um, just as the atmosphere and the lighting and the table setting contributes to your being able to enjoy food, I think you have a psychological predisposition to have a deeper relationship with something whose story you appreciate. Good. Well, I very much appreciate that. Again, I can recommend to our listeners the book Pig Perfect, Encounters with Remarkable Swine, Peter Kaminsky has written. And then also, uh, coming out in the fall of 2011? Correct. It will be your book, Culinary Intelligence. I very much look forward to seeing that. So thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Please look at our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a list of other podcasts and a variety of resources pertaining to food and food policy issues. Thank you.